Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all today and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word together. Before we do that, though, I'm going to open us again in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have determined that your word would accomplish the various purposes you have determined it should. So we come to you now and ask that as your word is preached, you would accomplish those purposes. We pray that you would save, that you would sanctify, that you would build up your church, and that you'd bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, friends, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapters 46 and 47. We are nearing the end of our study in Genesis. I think the next sermons that we have are Genesis 48, then Genesis 49, and then I think one on Genesis 50. It may be 49 and 50 together. So we're almost at the end of this series that we started in 2019, and we put it on pause because, because of COVID, but we're finally bringing this thing to a close. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you're going to find our passage today on pages 39 to 41. Also, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we want to encourage you to take the copy that we provided as a gift from us to you. Uh, we believe that God has definitively spoken to mankind through the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, and so we want you to have a copy of God's Word for yourself. As always, I want to encourage you to turn to the passage and keep it open in front of you throughout our time together because we're going to be looking often at the passage throughout the sermon. Last week, we considered together Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers, right? One of the most dramatic and emotionally gripping passages in all of Scripture, and after Joseph forgave his brothers, he told them to return to the land of Canaan to tell their father Jacob that he was alive, and he told them to bring Jacob and all of their wives and all of their children to live with him in Egypt so that he could provide for them during the crushing famine that the world was experiencing at the time. So the sons go, they tell Jacob, Joseph is alive. Jacob is shocked. He literally can't believe it. They tell him again, no, really, Joseph is alive. Jacob's soul is revived. He believes their report, and he decides, I am going to Egypt to see my son. That's where our passage picks up today. Jacob embarks on his journey to Egypt with all of his children and all of his grandchildren to go see his son Joseph and to take up residence in Egypt. Now, normally I read the whole passage, but because chapter 46 is almost entirely a genealogy, and because the lessons we're going to take away from these chapters are concentrated in specific verses, we're just going to focus on those specific verses that I think kind of make the whole point most clear of this whole passage, 46, chapters 46 and 47, and I'm going to ex try to explain how those verses that we focus on shed light on all that's going on around it. In these two chapters, we learn three lessons about God's care and purposes for his people. Three lessons that were important for Jacob and his family, 
three lessons that would be important for the nation of Israel that came from Jacob, and three lessons that are important for us today. So if you're taking notes, these three lessons form our main point, our main idea for the day. We find in chapters 46 and 47 that God is with us, blesses us, and will bless the nations through us. That's the main point of chapters 46 and 47. God is with us, God blesses us, and God will bless the nations through us. And those three lessons will serve as the three points of my sermon this morning. So first, God is with us. I want you to go ahead and look at me at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 46. I'm going to read those for us. We read there. So Israel, that is Jacob, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So Jacob is on his way from Canaan in the north, south into Egypt. He stops in Beersheba, which maybe was like halfway along the way, and he offers sacrifices to God. And while he was there, God appeared to Jacob in a vision of the night. These are actually the last words that God speaks to Jacob in all of Genesis. If you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the patriarchs, you think of these three men as the forefathers of the nation of Israel, God has appeared to them and spoken to them on numerous occasions. This is the last occasion that God speaks to one of the forefathers of Israel. And in these final words to Jacob, we find that God is still keeping his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at verse three. I am God, the God of your father. That is the God of Isaac and thus the God of Abraham, the God who created all things and who promised to make Abraham into a great nation and promised to bless the nations through him. Then he tells Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I think he tells him not to be afraid because God has been clear throughout Genesis that the land of Canaan was the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here, Jacob is now leaving the promised land to head to Egypt, and he may be concerned about whether God will keep his promises to him even though he's leaving the land that God promised to him. And what we find out is that not only will God keep his promises, but Jacob's journey into Egypt will be the means by which those promises will be fulfilled. Look again at what God says in verse three. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great 
nation. Throughout the last 34 chapters, God has promised over and over again that he would make Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into a great nation. He would give them many descendants. And although God has already begun keeping that promise in small ways, we're going to find out in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, the nation will explode in size while in Egypt. They will come to number as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. All the promises that God had made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then reaffirmed to Jacob throughout the course of his life are still in effect. God is still working them out. Through all of the ups and downs, through all of the suffering and sorrow, through all of those periods of time where God wasn't actively speaking to Jacob, where Jacob may have been tempted to wonder, is God still working? God definitively answers here, nearing the end of his life, yes, all of the promises I made to you will come to pass. More than that, he tells Jacob, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God comforts, strengthens, and encourages Jacob by promising his personal presence to lead Jacob, protect Jacob, and eventually bring Jacob back to the promised land even after he has died. God will be with Jacob even in Egypt. Right? The promise of God's personal presence has been one of God's most oft-repeated promises to Jacob. This is the third time God has promised Jacob that he would be with him. Jacob has experienced the personal presence of God ever since God chose him in Genesis chapter 28. God's commitment to be personally present with Jacob has persisted throughout the course of Jacob's life. And as he enters this final stage of his life and the fearful journey that lies ahead, God remains unwaveringly committed to being personally present with Jacob through it all. I just want to hit pause right here and address some of the older saints in the room. Perhaps you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Perhaps you are nearing the last stage of your life. You may be wondering, yes, I've seen God work in the past in my life. I've known in the past that God is with me. He has carried me through thick and thin. He has carried me through all sorts of trials. But what about this last stage of my life? What about this last stretch that I am entering into? Is God gonna be with me is he going to be personally present with me through the, the difficulties that I'll face ahead? Perhaps the loneliness, perhaps the sorrow of seeing other people pass from this life, perhaps being le the, the, left, the last one left of your loved ones, perhaps even facing death. I think God's word to you as he addresses Jacob entering the final stage of his life is, I am with you. I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The world may not pay any attention to you as you enter the final stretch of your life, but you are the apple of my eye. I have promised to be with my saints, young and old alike, and my presence will never leave you or forsake you. God's commitment to be with Jacob 
And God's commitment to be with his people persists throughout the course of our lives. But God's promise of his personal presence wasn't only for Jacob. The promise of God's personal presence was central to the promises God made to Abraham and to the nation of Israel that descended from them. And we need to see how important this promise would have been to the nation of Israel and how it should have affected how they lived their lives. We need to remember that the book of Genesis wasn't written to Jacob and his immediate descendants. It was written to his descendants about 400 years later. Right? The book, of, the book of Genesis was written some 400 years after Jacob to the nation of Israel after they came out of slavery in Egypt. When they first heard or read about God's promise to be with Jacob on his journey to Egypt, they would have realized that their experiences in Egypt and the fact that they became slaves weren't the result of some mistake one of their distant relatives made by moving to Egypt, but instead were the result of God's sovereign command that Jacob go and take residence in Egypt. More than that, they would have looked back at what had just happened in the Exodus and realized that just as God was with Jacob when he traveled to Egypt, so he had always been with them while they multiplied in Egypt, keeping them throughout the experience of hard slavery, causing them to multiply even as they were being intensely persecuted by Pharaoh, even there hearing their groans and cries for mercy and then powerfully and miraculously delivering them through the Red Sea. God was with Israel in Egypt. More than that, he was with Israel in the wilderness, leading them as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, right? Then he was with them in the tabernacle and later the temple before finally and fully granting his personal presence to his people in the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. God's intention has always been to gather a people for himself who would experience the power of his personal presence throughout the course of their lives, and that promise has been most fully fulfilled in the church, who Paul calls in Romans the Israel of God, the church. The people of God who've been redeemed from bondage to sin by the blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, now know the personal presence of the almighty God with us through the power of his Holy Spirit who dwells in each of us. And because of that, like God said to Jacob, he says to us, we don't need to fear. The main reason Jacob doesn't need to fear going down to Egypt is because God himself would be with him. The main reason the nation of Israel didn't need to fear the Egyptians pursuing them or later threats from their enemies while they were in the wilderness or later the giant Canaanites who were living in the land or later the Babylonians and Assyrians or famine or disease or nakedness or sword was because God was with them. There is nothing God's people need to fear in this life because God is with us. Friend, if you, if you trust in Jesus Christ, the almighty God of heaven and earth, the one who spoke and brought trillions of galaxies into existence by the power of his word, that same God, is personally 
present with you. The kids, I don't, know, I don't know how this lands on you. It's kind of abstract. What does it mean God is with me? I don't, I, don't, I don't see him. I don't see him present with me. When I was a kid, when we played sports, you know, you would, you know, all the kids that were playing in a game, would, they would all line up, and then two captains would be picked. And you always, you always end up picking the captains who were, like, the best at the sports. And then you're sitting there and just wanting to know, like, oh, I hope I get picked by the best captain so that I can be on their team. Because if I'm on their team, then I don't need to fear anything. We're going to win the game. I think in a small way, that's what it's like with the Lord. God has brought us onto his, onto his team. God, who rolls deep, he rolls with the armies of heaven, can't be defeated by any, anybody, has brought you onto his team. And every fearful circumstance you and I might face in this life is nothing for God to handle. God is with us. As weak and old Jacob ventures down into Egypt, the, the nation that was the most powerful nation on earth, God is like, don't fear them. Fear me. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth, and I am with you. Friends, what are you fearing today? What are you fearing today? Perhaps you're fearing the unknown. What's going to happen to my child when he or she goes off to college? How am I going to provide for myself or my family if I'm unable to find a job? What are the results going to be of my recent biopsy? What's going to happen to the markets and the economy? Are they going to collapse in our, in our country? What's going to happen? There are innumerable examples of unknowns that we might face, but friends, in the face of the unknown, God says to each of us, I am with you. Just as I was with Jacob as he ventured into the unknown of Egypt, so I am with you as you face unknowns in your life. Maybe it's not the unknowns, but the knowns. My marriage is in shambles. My biopsy came back positive. Maybe you have a classmate who bullies you or makes you afraid when you go to school. Maybe you're presently facing fearful circumstances. If you're facing fearful circumstances, God's word to you and I today is, do not be afraid. I am with you. The reason this is so important for us to hear is because of how common it is for fallen human beings, redeemed Christians even, to experience fear in this life. That's why the command to not fear is the most often repeated command in all of scripture. In a fallen world, fearful things happen. And it would be unhuman to not experience fear on some level, but the, the question is, what do we do with that fear when we experience it? We always need to remember as God's people that we never face any of those fearful things alone. We think of Jesus in that storm in the New Testament. The disciples are, are going crazy. They're freaking out for understandable reasons. The boat is sinking. He's asleep. It's a display of the fearlessness with which God's people can face terrifying and fearful circumstances in life because we know that whatever circumstances we face that are fearful, it's God who has ordained them. It's God who sovereignly led us into them, and it's the, God, the same God who's going to lead us through them and then eventually out of them. 
so that even when we face death itself, God says, just as he says to Jacob, I will bring you out of Egypt even after you have died and Joseph has closed your eyes. I will bring you up and return you to the promised land. Even as we face death itself, friends, we can face death without being consumed by fear because God is with us. We never need to face any of those fearful things alone. In Christ, we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother, whose power is inexhaustible and who's promised to bring us through death even itself. Right? God is with you on the peaks and he is with you in the valleys. God is with you on the heights and he is with you in the depths. He is with you in the promised land and he is with you in Egypt. God is no respecter of do not enter signs. God goes wherever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and he is with his people in all that they face, so we don't need to fear. The personal presence of God is an endless source of strength and courage for God's people. Kids, I wonder how many of you play video games. Uh, There are certain games Usually games that involve fighting where your character will have a strength meter, right? And the more they get hit, the more the meter goes down until the character dies. But in most, most of those games where there's like a strength meter, there's also usually like health stations along the way where you can recharge and the strength meter is filled back up. The promise of God's personal presence with his people is like that health station, We endure the difficulties and trials and sufferings of this life, and as a result, we fear and grow weak. But then we gather on Sundays, and we're reminded, oh, God is with us. God is with me. And that our sufferings and trials and sorrows are not some accident that happened because God lost track of us, but instead are sovereignly ordained circumstances through which God is accomplishing his perfect purposes in us. We're reminded that, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, We need fear no evil for the Lord is with us and we're strengthened as a result. Friend, none of the circumstances you're facing right now are a surprise to God, nor are they too much for God to handle. Just as the nation of Israel would later realize, wow, what what happened to us in Egypt wasn't an accident but was sovereignly ordained by God in order to display his strength in our weakness. So the circumstances we're facing are for the same purpose. God will at times call us to endure really hard things, fearful things, but he doesn't leave us to navigate them on our own. He is with us through all of it. But not only is God with us, second point, God blesses us. God blesses us. After his encounter with God, we read that Jacob set out from Beersheba with all that he had. I want you to look at verse 7. He came, chapter 46, verse 7, he came into Egypt with his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Then what you find in verses 8 to 27 is a list of the names of Jacob's children and grandchildren who came with him into Egypt. Now I want you to look down with me at chapter 46 at the second half of verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. You just got to realize and consider how richly God 
has blessed Jacob. This is the same Jacob who had to use a stone for a pillow because he had no possessions when he fled from Esau in Genesis 28. The same Jacob who fled without a wife and without any children from the land of Canaan to a country and a family he did not know. And now that same man is entering Egypt with a family numbering 70 strong with all of the livestock that he is bringing with him. God has blessed Jacob. But not only has he blessed him with many offspring, he also blesses him with the best of the land of Egypt. After he arrives in Egypt, he's reunited with his son Joseph. They have an emotional reunion. And then Joseph brings Jacob to meet Pharaoh. I want you to look at chapter 47, verse 5. Look at what Pharaoh says to, to Jacob or to Joseph. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. Not only has God blessed Jacob with offspring, God so moves in such a way that Pharaoh gives to Jacob, a foreigner, the best of the land of Egypt to dwell in. Keep in mind that God had already given Jacob the promised land of Canaan, which had abundantly supported him for years now. But having been forced to travel to Egypt because of the famine, God now blesses Jacob with the best of the land of Egypt. After Jacob settles in the land of Goshen, we read in verses 13 to 26 of chapter 47 about how hard the famine was on the Egyptians. They ended up giving up all their money, livestock, and land, and then even had to become indentured servants just to stay alive during the famine. And while all of this is happening to Egypt, look at how Jacob is doing in chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. While Egypt was languishing, Jacob was prospering. His family gained possessions and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God is manifestly blessing Jacob in accordance with all of his promises to him. And yet, we also learn in this chapter that Jacob didn't exactly notice, acknowledge, or give thanks to God for those blessings. In verses seven to nine of chapter 47, Joseph brings Jacob to meet Pharaoh. I want you to look there with me. Chapter 47, verses seven to nine. This is what we read. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Do you notice how myopic Jacob's response is? 
Now, don't get me wrong. Really hard things have happened to him. He essentially lost one of his sons for 22 years. Yet, at the same time, saying that his life has been short and evil shows that he doesn't see the numerous ways God had evidently, manifestly blessed him throughout the course of his life. Think of the numerous ways God had blessed him. Even though Jacob lied and deceived his father, God blessed Jacob and gave him the Abrahamic promises, making him, among other things, a forerunner to the Messiah. Even though his brother wanted to murder him, God blessed him by preserving him and promised to be with him during his journey to Haran. While in Haran, though he suffered under Laban, God blessed him and gave him abundant wealth and numerous children. After fleeing from Laban, God blessed him by keeping Laban from harming him. God then blessed Jacob by bringing reconciliation with his estranged brother Esau. God blessed him from, by protecting him from the surrounding nations after his sons committed that atrocity against the Shechemites. God then preserved Jacob for 22 years and blessed him by giving, it, giving him back his son Joseph as if from the dead. God has multiplied his offspring. God has given him the land of Canaan. God has brought him safely to Egypt and given him the best of the land, causing him to prosper in the midst of a famine. But when given the chance to testify to the ways Yahweh had blessed him, Jacob tells Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my life. Instead of testifying to all the grace God had poured out on him, he focuses instead on the trials that have happened to him. He's so focused on what has gone wrong in life that he's unable to see, acknowledge, and rejoice in all that God had done for him. He's come to define his life only by the trials and suffering and sorrow that he had experienced rather than the glorious grace God had poured out on him. We can often be like Jacob, can't we? All too often, we focus on what we don't have rather than on what God has given us. All too often, we focus on the trials and the sorrows and the sadness. And over time, when we focus on those things, we can subtly give into the temptation to begin defining ourselves by our trials rather than by God's abundant grace towards us. Maybe you've been battling chronic illness or pain. Maybe you have received a diagnosis that's going to radically alter your life. Maybe you've lost a loved one, or you long to be married or to have children. Maybe you're battling loneliness or dealing with a broken family, or maybe you've been praying for a job or a different job or more income, or a home that isn't so cramped. We, we, we could come up with numerous examples. And even when you stop and think about the examples, what you notice is that there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting any of these things, right? It's right to want to be freed from chronic pain. It's right to want a broken family to be restored. It's right to not want to be lonely. But what we don't want to do is so focus on those things that we haven't been given that we're unable to see the things that we have been given. 
Each week, our family watches an episode of a National Geographic show called Brain Games. It's a show about the mysteries of how the human brain works. This past episode that we watched was all about the brain's ability to focus on particular things. And basically what they do throughout the episode over and over again is they give real-life illustrations of what happens to, to our brain, to, to us, when you and I focus on specific things. And one of the main things that happens when we focus on specific things is that we can't see anything else that's going on. And to, pr- to prove this, one of the illustrations that they use is they have a magician. The guy's like a professional magician slash pickpocket. He doesn't actually pick people's pockets. He just shows how it can be done by getting them to focus on certain things. So what they do is they bring him out. He's standing in front of the camera. He's the main character that you're focused on. And I think he's like in Vegas or some city like that. There's all sorts of people walking around behind him down the sidewalk. And he's like, okay, I want you to focus on me. And he's teaching the, the people watching how not to get their pockets picked when they're in a busy city. And so he says, what you want to do, he's holding this cup, and he's like, I want you to focus on this cup. He's like, if you're on a subway, if you're in a busy city, what I want you to do is I want you to take your wallet, you're going to pull it out of your jacket pocket, or you're going to pull it out of your back pocket, or out of your open purse, and what I want you to do is you're going to stuff it into the soda cup. You're going to stuff it down into the cup, and I'm watching, and my kids are just kind of like, oh, this is interesting, I'm watching, I'm like, this is weird. So he stuffs it down into the cup. He grabs dollar bills, stuffs it down into the cup. And then he's like, then what you do is you put your soda lid back on top. Put the soda lid back on top, and then you pretend to drink out of it. Then when the pickpocket comes, he's going to reach into your pockets, and he's not going to find anything there because your wallet and your money is in the cup. And you're like, okay, I could see how that could work, but kind of weird. And then he takes the top off the cup, and he's like, and then when you're out of the busy city, you're back in your hotel room or you're in your car, you dump your things back out to your, you get your wallet and your money back out. But then when he dumps it out, it's red juice, and there's no wallet or money. And you're like, this is weird. Okay, a neat trick. What happened to the wallet and the money? And then the narrator comes on, and the narrator's like, that was a neat trick, wasn't it? But did any of you notice that a giant gorilla, bear, And Rabbit walked by him while he was doing the trick, and all of us were like, no, there's no way. And then they rewind the tape, and lo and behold, he's doing his trick, and a giant gorilla, bear, and rabbit walk by. And they're like, hey, when you focus on the cup, you can't see anything else that's going on around him. Friends, when we focus on the sorrows, the sadness, and the trials, we can't see what God is doing in our lives. It's all blocked, it's all, it's all hazy, it's in the background. We need to take a step back and keep our eyes focused on what God is doing in our lives and the grace that he's poured out on us. When we focus on difficulty and trials that we may be experiencing or things that we are just really discontented with, we may begin to think that that's the only thing going on in our lives. But the reality is that's not all that there is. That's all we think there is because we're focused on it so much that we're not seeing the very large evidences of God's grace that are also present in our lives. Friends, even in our sorrows and trials, God has blessed us. What does Paul say in Ephesians? God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places is ours in Jesus Christ. Peter says, God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Think about it. All these spiritual blessings. God rescued us from slavery to sin. He broke the power of sin in our lives. He cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He gave us new hearts. He renewed our minds. He clothed us in robes of righteousness. He adopted us as his very own children. He declared us innocent for all time. He holds us fast when we wander. He gathers us under his wings like a mother hen does to his chicks. He sings over us, says Zephaniah. He quiets us with his love. His mercies are new every day. Grace upon grace upon grace. Blessing upon blessing is ours every single day in Jesus Christ. And beyond those spiritual blessings, consider the many other blessings God has brought into your life through the people in your life. Whether through your parents, your spouse, your children, your friends, your roommates, your professors, your boss, your coworkers, or the ways that God has abundantly provided for you by giving you a job or a home or clothing or transportation and other material blessings, our cups, surely they runneth over, friends, as you catch up with your friends during the week, maybe in small groups. Do you find yourself only talking about the really hard things that are happening in life? Or are you also talking about the ways that God has been faithful to you? What are habits and practices that you might adopt in order to highlight and consider God's graces and blessings to you? I know some of the families in our, li- uh, in our church uh, at dinner time use something called the ABCs of gratitude. We've adopted that in our family. We do it often at dinner time where we just go around the table and we talk about some blessing or grace that aligns with that particular letter in the alphabet, going through the ABCs of things that we can be grateful for. We need to practice focusing on God's grace, focusing on the blessings he has bestowed upon us because it's so easy for us to just give way to discontentment. And give way to focus on the things that we are not grateful for or are experiencing, the difficulties we are experiencing in life. In all of this, friends, we're trying to draw our focus from the hardships of life to the glorious realities that God has bestowed upon us in Christ and that ultimately await us in eternity, in the presence of Christ. God is with us and God blesses us And that brings us to our third and final point. God will bless the nations through us. One of the central promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that blessing would come to the nations through Abraham and his offspring. And we see that blessing coming to fruition in part through Jacob and his offspring. I want you to look back with me again at Jacob's interaction with Pharaoh in chapter 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Then he makes a comment about his life being short and evil, but now look down at verse 10. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Jacob opens and closes his conversation with Pharaoh by calling for Yahweh's favor to be bestowed on Pharaoh and on Egypt as a whole. Jacob calls for God to bless Pharaoh and thus bless Egypt. And God does bless Pharaoh and Egypt through Joseph's 
uh, Jacob's son, Joseph. Immediately after Jacob blesses Pharaoh in verses 7 to 10, we read in verses 13 to 26 about how Joseph wisely administered grain during the famine for the ultimate good of the people of Egypt. Look at verse 13 of chapter 47. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. These were terrible circumstances that the people of Egypt faced. And so we see in these verses, uh, excuse me, uh, and so we see in the verses that follow, the people first spend all their money to buy the grain that Joseph had stored up. Then when they run out of money, they sell their livestock for grain. Then when they run out of livestock, they sell their land for grain. And then when they run out of all of that, they sell themselves as indentured servants for grain. Now, some people get tripped up on these verses thinking that Joseph has treated them unfairly or unjustly, but I want you to notice, what do the Egyptians say about Joseph in verse 25? Chapter 47, verse 25. You have saved our lives. These are hard circumstances, but the people look at Joseph and how he has wisely administered the grain, and they say, you have saved us. God promised that the nations would be blessed through Abraham and his offspring, and here we see that promise coming to fruition in a powerful way as the weaker and older Jacob pronounces blessing on the younger and stronger Pharaoh, and as Jacob's son Joseph saves the Egyptians. And yet this scene is only a partial fulfillment of God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bless, bless the nations wouldn't come through a ruler who administers grain to the hungry, but through a ruler who administers salvation to sinners. God's promise to bless the nations would ultimately be fulfilled through the coming of Abraham's true offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring the blessing of salvation for all nations by dying in the place of all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. The same Jesus rose from the dead, proving that God accepted his sacrifice, and the risen Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent of sin and trust in him. To my non-Christian friends who may be here, if you know yourself to be in need of a savior, I wanna encourage you to do what the Egyptians did and come to God's appointed savior for help. Not Joseph, but Jesus. Jesus has promised that all who come to him in faith will be saved. And if you don't follow Jesus, I want you to notice something else about this passage. Alongside God's promise to be with his people and bless his people and bless the nations through his people, God has also promised to bless those who bless his people and curse those who curse them. Here you see Pharaoh blessing the people of Israel by giving them the best of the land to live in. He's also blessed the people of Israel by treating Joseph well and making him ruler over his land. And as a result, God is blessing Pharaoh. Pharaoh and Egypt are preserved through the famine. Later in Egypt's history, another Pharaoh would come along who didn't bless the people of Israel, but cursed them by making them slaves. And since he cursed them, God cursed him, bringing judgment on them. What does this mean for you? It means your eternal spiritual well-being is directly tied 
to your response to Abraham's true offspring. Not the nation of Israel, but Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. And whoever blesses Jesus by repenting of sin and trusting in him will be blessed by being saved. But whoever curses Jesus by not repenting, by not acknowledging that he's both Lord and Savior, will be cursed. There is no middle ground with God. We either confess that Jesus is Lord and are saved or reject Jesus as Lord and are condemned. This is what Jesus taught in the Gospels. Whoever is not believed is condemned already, please, for the sake of your soul and for your present blessing by coming to know God as Savior through his son Jesus, turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. There's also a word here for the church. I wonder, though, if you notice the detail in chapter 46, verse 27, where we learn that all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70. That's a significant detail because the last place we saw 70 names listed was in Genesis 10, in the table of nations. These were the 70 nations that committed idolatry at the Tower of Babel. Seven signifies completion. Seventy nations signifies all the nations on earth. They were all gathered together, participating in this idolatry. Everyone on earth rejected God. And then what happens after Babel? God calls one man, Abraham, promises to make him into a great nation. And now Abraham's descendants, Jacob and his family, number 70. Moses wants us to see that out of all the nations on earth who were in rebellion against God, God called, God chose, God created a new nation. The 70 members of Jacob's family marking off the new nation of Israel. And that nation was called to administer God's blessing to the nations by walking in faith, as their forefather Abraham did, by trusting in God's promises and by pointing people to God's promise of a Messiah. The nation of Israel fails at this task. Throughout the Old Testament, they don't walk in faith. They disobey God's commands. They don't look forward to God's coming promised Messiah, and and so God sends them into exile. Then he sends his son, Jesus, who dies and rises, who pours out his spirit on the earth, gathering from all the nations on the earth a new nation of people who would be filled with his spirit, who would walk by faith and reliance on him and who would seek to bring the blessing of salvation to all the nations on earth. God intends to bless the nations through the church, the Israel of God. And he intends to do that, broadly speaking, in two ways. I'm gonna touch on these super briefly as we close. God intends to bring the blessing to the, to bring blessing to the nations through the church's proclamation of the gospel both corporately, like what we're doing right now, and individually in each of our own lives. The gospel is given to the church and to Christians as the power of God for salvation for all who believe. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. While Joseph is a wonderful picture of how we can and should care for people's physical needs as best we can, Jesus reorients us to humanity's most pressing need. We need to be reconciled to God. And the only way people can be reconciled to God is through God's people sharing the good news of salvation. Friends, who in your life 
Are you actively praying for opportunities to share the gospel with? Who in your life are you actively looking for opportunities to talk about spiritual things with? Right? I get that it can be nerve-wracking, a nerve-wracking thing, and you may, be, you may feel awkward doing it. I think even God acknowledges that because he has chosen, as he says in 1 Corinthians, the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. But God has given us this role in order to bring the blessing of salvation to the ends of the earth as we tell people how they can be saved through Christ. And the second way that we can be a blessing to the nations is by serving our neighbors in love. Jesus calls his people to be salt and light, and we do that by sharing the gospel and by being people who are sacrificially serving others. Joseph's a wonderful example of this. He wisely cares for the physical needs of the people of Egypt. In the same way, we should be looking for opportunities to love and serve those whom God has placed in our lives. We want to love and serve those from whom we should expect nothing in return, right? The world is obviously going to love and serve those they can gain something from, but God's people are called to love and serve those from people, serve people without regard for what we will receive from them. How might you, in the week to come, love and serve those God has placed in your life? And whether coworkers, family, friends, neighbors, Often in the Christian life, it's our faithful service over long periods of time that opens people up to wanting to hear more about Jesus and about what he's done for us. And that's the ultimate goal. We want to love people in such a way that we win a hearing to tell them about Jesus who is able to save their souls. And as we do this, we have the great promises that Jacob lived under, that God is with us, God will bless us, and God will bless the nations through us until, like Jacob, we pass from this life. But even then, we know that God will open our eyes and bring us into the true promised land where we will be with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promised presence that is with us even now. We pray, Lord, that you would quiet our fears, that you would give us strength and courage in the face of those difficult trials we might be facing, that you give us eyes to see the many blessings that you have given to us and motivated by your grace and mercy towards us. Give us opportunities in the week to come to share the good news of salvation, that the blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ might come to the ends of the earth. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.